my efforts to be a creative writer. So being a fact checker wasn't my first at all my first thought. Um, my first thought had been to work in publishing close to fiction publishing. You know, the logic was I want to publish fiction, so I guess I should go work near where fiction is being published. And I tried getting a job as assistant to the fiction editor at The New Yorker, um, and I didn't get hired. And faithfully, I think, because um, I'm so happy I sort of ended up sliding sideways into fact checking. A friend of mine who worked at the magazine you know, knew I was disappointed and said, well, why don't you try this other department? They're hiring and, um, you know, actually might be better for you as a fiction writer not to be reading other people's fiction all day long, but maybe doing something else that's um, interesting and, you know, essentially like a form of research and involved with other people's prose, but not with fiction specifically. And so it was like one slight kind of step off center from what I wanted to be doing and it was so much better to do that for a living you know to do that all day long and sort of be stimulated but not actually be draining my own kind of fiction writing energies whatever those might be um, so it actually made the transition easier I guess I would say yeah I have heard that from other writers that it's important to have at least when you're starting out to have an occupation that's not creative writing because it kind of allows you to leave that muscle rested during the day. Yes. So you go home, you can have all of your energy left to, for your own work. Exactly. That's really well put. Um, it does leave that muscle rested, but I found that working in fact-checking, to stick with that metaphor since it's such a useful one, exercised other nearby muscles that were also really useful in fiction writing without exhausting the fiction writing one. And so um, it turned out to be kind of an ideal situation for me when I was trying to write my first novel. I was working as a fact checker by day and by night I would come home and work on this, this creative project. And those two things fit together really well. So to be a metaphor until it's dead, it's like crossing <laughs> for your marathon by swimming. Exactly. <laughs> okay. um, so it sounds almost like you had a very clear vision of creative writing being where you wanted to be um, and finding ways to support yourself to get there. Is that an accurate description of, of kind of going through your education? That makes me sound much more, um, that makes me sound much more together and focused than I really was. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that by the time I had that fact checking job, which was my mid 20s, I did have a clearer vision of what I wanted, which was to write and publish fiction, but it took a while to get there. And I definitely did not have that vision while I was at Yale. Um, even though I was interested in creative writing at Yale and taking classes and um, contributing sometimes to literary journals, it was far from the only thing I was doing. And I really wasn't, while at Yale, kind of aware of like what it would take to have a career as a creative writer. I, I, I was still kind of floundering, to be honest. And um, even when I went to graduate school to study creative writing, it was more a defensive move because I got out of undergrad and didn't know what to do with myself. And I think often grad school is the answer to that quandary. Um, so also even though I was- Pandemics in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and grad school is, is a great way to, you know, buy yourself a little more time. I, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. That's what I used it for. Um, but even while I was in grad school, I didn't really know what sort of a path into creative writing I was going to take. I didn't 
I wasn't that productive while I was in grad school. Even though I wasn't supposed to be doing anything but writing fiction, I did not get that much fiction written, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, so by the time I had that job as a fact checker, I felt a little chagrined by having gone all the way through a graduate program and not having a book to show for it. And I think that pressure and the, the sense that I had, you know, squandered my, my, graduate, my graduate degree a tiny bit was focusing. It, it's, it really focuses the mind to feel like, whoa, I think I've just wasted a bunch of time. So I was more, um, more organized by that point. Do you, I mean, I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about whether or not MFA programs are useful people who want to be writers. Where do you kind of fall in that discussion? Yeah, my thoughts about that have evolved over the years, but they've also remained constant. So what has evolved for me is when I was a grad student in creative writing, um, it wasn't absolutely necessary to have that degree in order to go on and become a teacher of creative writing. But in recent years, it has become almost, um, I would say almost impossible to get a job teaching creative writing if you don't have that degree. So in that sense, my understanding of the utility of that degree has really changed. And I would say, yes, you know, if you want the option to teach, which is a wonderful option to have, um, that degree is going to come in handy. But the other thing, the other thing that I think about the degree has remained the same, which is don't go and get that degree unless you're prepared to use that time really, really constructively to do your creative work. Like don't go because you're not sure what to do. Don't go because you're hoping that the degree program is going to give you ideas that you don't already have. Um, wait until you actually have a project that you're dying for time, um, time to like just devote yourself to it. Because I went to that grad program, as I've mentioned, um, because I did not know what else to do with myself. And as I've mentioned, I kind of wasted those two years. And it wasn't until after I was out of the program that I realized what I wanted to write about and got a project and was was passionate about finishing it. And then it was, it was so ironic because I thought, wow, if only I'd known all this when I was going to that program and had all the time in the world to write. And now I'm working full time and have very little time. Um, so I think, I think the grad program is best thought of partly as like a fellowship, like apply to it when you know you have a project that you really want the support for. Um, and if you don't have that clarity yet, it's maybe better to wait, you know, until you know what you want to work on. That's really good advice. Um, Cause I feel like, yeah, exactly what we were just talking about with, with thinking about grad school and making choices. Um, even if you don't know how they're going to turn out, like trying to make them as intentionally as you can with the information that you have. Um, you mentioned that MFAs are really good for teaching and something I've been wondering, we, we mentioned earlier how um, you kind of want to, <laughs> bring back metaphor again. I kind of want to rest the creative writing muscles that you have it for your own work when you go home. Um, but you currently are surrounded by creative writing all the time as a professor. So my question is, do you think that teaching creative writing to students has an effect on your own writing when you go home at the end of the day? I do. And I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question and actually great sort of way to continue exploring this muscle metaphor <laughs> that we've laid down. Um, and to continue with it, I'll say that yeah. I think that the, the effect of teaching creative writing on my own creative writing is only positive so long as I can keep it in balance, right? So um, 
so long as I don't exhaust the muscle with the teaching. And it's pretty easy to know how to do that now because I've been teaching for, you know, decades at this point. And I've discovered that um, there's a really perfect balance almost where if I have sort of one or two classes at any given time, which is, you know, at Yale, such a luxury because that's usually going to be 12 to 24 students. It's kind of the perfect amount of engaging with engaging with student writing, which always helps me to kind of hone my ability to understand how to improve a piece of writing, whether it's someone else's or mine. Um, I hone my ability to express that idea about how to improve the writing, whether it's someone else's or mine. And, um, and also just to kind of keep me excited about writing. And I think that if I have too many students, too many classes, burnout can ensue. So again, with the muscle metaphor, it's like, um, as long as I don't use up all my energy, it actually gives me energy for my work. And I've been really lucky at Yale because the amount of teaching that I do at Yale is kind of like in that, you know, like to bring the three bears into it, it's kind of at the just right level. And I've, um, and I've just loved it. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to teach so much that I lose my appreciation. And I'm also really grateful that I don't not have teaching work because especially in this climate, it's, it's really great to have the stability of being an instructor. That, that reminds me of a concept that I heard from a, a YouTube creator who talked about like how there's a healthy imbalance in life and the imbalances between consumption and creation. Um, mm. You want to be careful about um, making sure you almost create more than you consume because it's so easy to just read a ton or watch a ton and, and not be kind of putting your own spark out to the world. So it's important to kind of have an idea of where, where that balance is in your life. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. I really like that idea. Um, yeah, it's interesting because teaching is sort of actually its own balance between creating and consuming, you know, in a way like the actual activity of teaching is balanced between reading student work, which is like a consumption um, activity and also actively engaging with, you know, how to improve and enhance that work and make it, um, the best possible version of itself, which is a creative act. So it's interesting that teaching kind of combines those two things. But in a way, that's like the liberal arts education because you're taking, you know, great books or whatever, and then and then trying to either incorporate them to your own life or create some new um, interpretation of it. There's nothing to do with yes. career. I just think it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I agree. That is interesting. So maybe getting back on topic, that's on me, by the way. Um, so your <laughs> novels can be very literary and experimental. Um, does your style and choice in genre change things for you when it comes to getting published, as opposed to someone who's an author of romance or serialized fiction? Absolutely. I mean, these are, these are really different things. And I think um, this is one of the most challenging things about kind of confronting writing and publishing as a potential career is that it's full of all these fine gradations and differences that it's very hard to decode even if you're inside of it. So um, people who are on the outside of publishing should know that it's really confusing for everyone um, because there are all, all sorts of different types of writing and these appeal to different types of audiences and 
it's up to the publishing business to figure out how to match those two things, to ha- how to take the writing of one author and match it with the audience that's going to appreciate that kind of writing. You know, the, the sorts of books that I write, um, they have their audience, but it's not the same audience as, you know, it's not Stephen King's audience. It's not JK Rowling's audience. It's not, you know, it's, it's, I'm just throwing out like huge names. Like it's almost comical that I would say my books are not for Stephen King readers because they're so different, but, um, because all of these things are books and because we're all writers and because it's all published, it all does kind of get mixed up together. And so it's hard to sort it out. And especially as a novice writer, it can be very hard to figure out like, well, where should I try to direct my work so that people who will like it will find it. It's kind of the lifelong struggle actually. And, um, you know, it's sort of a matter of reading a lot so that you kind of have a sense of, for example, what kinds of magazines or journals or like online, you know, what sorts of websites um, contain the kind of thing that you make. And so they must speak to the kind of write, the kind of reader that would like your work. Um, you know, this, and it, it's always in flux and change, right? It's not, it's not like hard and fast categories. Like these categories exist, like romance is a category in publishing and suspense and mystery, but the categories aren't really as, as fixed as they might seem. People are always crossing over and that, that's what makes it interesting, but also confusing. <laughs> Do you have advice for someone who's created something kind of out there, very literary, um, who's trying to get it published, um, do you have any advice about how they should approach a publisher or, um, you know, do the query letter or any of those kind of initial steps when you're, when you're taking something that's not going to obviously fit in anywhere and, and you're kind of offering that up? Right. Yeah, it's hard. I think that the, the first thing to do is, is um, assume that it's going to fit in somewhere. Um, you know, it, it, it might be a very niche readership, but your reader is out there. And so I think the first thing to do is to try to find, as I was just saying, sort of in terms of magazines, journals, websites, try to find um, the place where the stuff is that, that kind of reminds you of your own stuff. The stuff that you like, the stuff that you admire um, is probably going to be the stuff that's somewhat similar to what you're making, right? I mean, obviously we all make different things, but we can still say like, oh, my favorite, my favorite writers are X, Y, and Z. Um, my work, you know, is similar to theirs. And so their, their readers might be my readers someday. So try to find those places. It might be a website. It might be, you know, a zine or a journal. Um, and see if you can submit your work to those places to be published. And then the other, the other thing is a lot of the big publishing industry is really um, is really built around the role of the literary agent who is, you know, a very important, um, very important figure in our publishing world because the agent is sort of the matchmaker in a way. They're people who connect writers to publishers. Um, and it's just invaluable if you're really serious about writing and you really want to publish and make a career of it to try to connect with an agent once you have a strong sense of what sort of writing you're making. You know, it's, it, it's not really helpful to just try to find an agent and say, I want to write. You know, the agent is going to be like, great, when you've 
got some writing and you're ready to publish it, then contact me. Um, but that's what agents are there for. They're there to take new voices and connect them to publishers. Um, they're sort of the middle people. And finding agents is hard um, and confusing, again. And often it's a question of like asking around, like, you know, ask your writing professors like me. <laughs> you know, I've had many students say to me, like, how do I find an agent? And I'm like, well, you know, what are you working on? What kind of writing is it? And I'll see if I can think of somebody that you should try emailing or reaching out to. Um, yeah, a lot of it is just that kind of information gathering. When you do get to the point of publication, I know a lot of writers today, especially ones who are writing um, YA fiction or something that um, really can gather a, a following, especially a teen, they spend a lot of their time doing like self-advocating and marketing and doing sort of media accounts. Um, is that something that you engage in at all? I do. I'm not very good at it because it's definitely like a world that has taken, <laughs> that has taken shape um, kind of, you know, after all of my habits were formed. Like, you know, I'm one of those older people who had to ask their 11 year old how to use Instagram. And luckily he was willing to tell me. So now I do Instagram. Um, but those, those platforms are really important. And I think that um, those of us who, because we're older, have found it difficult to wade into that, that arena. It's, it's kind of, it's been regrettable for us. Like it's, it's better if we can wade in and, um, you know, even like my own publisher, they're very tolerant. And when I was getting ready to publish my most recent book, they said, um, they said, okay, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you think you can just do at least one of the three and maybe two? And I said, all right, I'll do one and maybe two. <laughs> and so um, that's kind of the rule of thumb is I do Instagram and sometimes I update my Facebook page, but very rarely and I don't tweet. Um, but I think that, you know, that's really, that's really like so, uh, so central to the way we're communicating these days that you can't, you can't turn your back on it, you know, but it's also a really different form of communication and you kind of have to figure out like, well, what, what's it for? Like your Instagram feed is not the same as your book and it's not the same as, you know, your website, like all of these, all of these venues are, are a little bit different. So when it comes to your teaching and you mentioned, you know, working with students on, on them getting published and that kind of thing, um, what skill do you think is most important for a modern day writer to possess that you try to pass on to your students? Um, and what do you think are some steps that young writers, especially Yale writers, um, could do now to prepare for or build a creative career? I would say almost the same answer to both, those are both great questions. And I think the answer is the same, which is consistency. I think the most important thing to have is consistency in terms of your own work process. And that's the most important thing to build is a consistent work process, by which I mean, you know, literally to get, to get back to that muscle metaphor, it's like, if you think it's important to exercise every day because you want to be healthy, um, and you know it's also important to write every day if you want to be a writer. Like writing is actually a skill, and um, it's not a God-given or innate talent. I mean, people have a greater or lesser capacity to do it, but it's actually a skill that like you can learn and you can improve. And the more you do it 
the better you get at it. And also um, the more ideas you have, the more, the more your unsolved problems in your writing are going to get solved. Uh, it's, it's really a consistency game. Writing is really one of those things where if you do it every day, it's just like yoga or any, any of a, a number of other things that if you do them every day, you'll be amazed at the difference it will make. And this was a lesson that I didn't learn when I was a student writer. I was very much um, tied to deadlines and, you know, prone to do what you do when you have a lot to do, which is do things in the order in which you have to do them instead of trying to do them all the time. So with writing, it, it took me a long time to realize that if I just made space and time to write every day, even if it wasn't on a particular project, even if it wasn't something I was ever going to show to anybody, even if it was like my journal entry or just 300 words on any subject, um, it adds up. It really adds up not only in you know, delivering lots and lots of ideas to you that you didn't realize you had until they kind of ended up written down. Um, but it also adds up just in terms of your voice and your ability to observe and articulate things just gets better and better. So I would say that consistency, I wish that I had, I wish that I had established that habit a lot earlier in my career because I'm still struggling to establish it. Um, but, you know, it's never too late to start. And I, I did hear that an aspect of your class is uh, keeping a daily notebook, so to speak. So you are trying to help people build that habit in a way. Yeah, that, that's been an aspect of some of my classes, not all of them, um, but it's definitely, it's definitely something that was an aspect of um, my advanced fiction workshop for several years is this, this daily notebook practice. And I actually, in my most recent semester, didn't do it because um, I sort of reinvented my class and was doing a bunch of things differently, but I'll definitely bring it back. It's one of my favorite things to um, force people to do because <laughs> it always ends up, um, it always ends up being worthwhile. And I actually force myself to do it. I've been doing it this whole year. I don't always, but actually since January 1st of this year, I've been doing my own 300 words um, a day just because I'm in between projects and I don't know how to get out of this in between place except to just, write a little every day until I figure it out. Awesome. Um, so we're just about out of time, but I do like to end the question. Um, what are your hopes for the future? You know, kind of what's next for you if in, in the ideal world? Oh, wow. Do you mean personally or globally? Because most of oh. my hopes feel pretty global <laughs> right now. I mean, gosh, my hopes for the future right now are so immediate, which are that we just get um, through the next, the rest of this year safely and that we come out of it a stronger, better, smarter nation. I mean, I've been so, you know, um, I'm not sure when listeners will hear this, but, you know, you and I both know we're recording in the middle of a historic pandemic and, um, and there was, you know, no end of our spring semester and there was no graduation and um, we're in this extraordinary period. And I guess my biggest hope right now is that we come out of it better um, individually, but also like socially and culturally and globally. I hope that we learn good lessons from it. Um, and I guess personally too, I, I hope that this time next year, I'll feel like I've learned a lot from this experience and maybe have processed it enough to 
write something about it that will be helpful to somebody. What are the odds it might be like a zombie apocalypse novel? <laughs> low. They're well, pretty low because I have to say, I think that there are writers who are doing really, really good work in the zombie apocalypse genre, and mm -hmm. I'm just going to leave it to them. <laughs> that just seems to be all, all I can think about is like just writing <laughs> the next quiet place or bird box where nobody can go outside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we're going to have a lot of great stories like that, I think, at the end of, at the end of this very unusual period of our lives. Um, I have a feeling whatever I write is not going to be that genre because it's not my it's not my comfort zone but who knows yeah. who knows maybe my comfort zone will be it just totally exploded by the end of all this yeah <laughs> well um i really appreciate you coming on the show i love talking to you this is awesome um, oh thanks for having me claire i really enjoyed it and hopefully we'll see each other on campus yeah in, hopefully in person on campus <laughs> in person in person in the near future here's yeah. something yeah, yeah, and with no masks on, and hopefully that can be. Exactly. Well, take care until then, and thanks again. This was fun. Thank you. Everybody, that was Professor Susan Choi of the Yale Creative Writing Department, and English Department too, I guess. Thank you. Thank you.